Nancy. Hi, Julie. Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Welcome. Nice to see you. We haven't seen each other in a long time, weeks and weeks, I feel like, uh, since we did our last recording. Um, I mean, who knows when the, this will drop, but Mother's Day was a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I thought of you like, uh, you know, they, they're Hallmark holidays in some respects, but you think of the struggles with your son and people that have uh, similar issues because it seems as though the mothers oftentimes are the punching bags when things get tough. I agree. I think holidays in general, which we've talked about before in our podcast, are, are super tough. Um, I think when it comes to something like Mother's Day, you reevaluate like what you've done and how you've done. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And it's hard when you're not communicating with your loved one for whatever reason, whether they're um, mad at you or incarcerated or sadly no longer with us. Yeah, really tough. Yeah, it becomes it becomes a struggle to get through that day for a lot of people. Yeah. Did you hear from your son? Um, we have not spoken still since Thanksgiving. Wow. He has periodically sent me some not-so-nice text messages to remind me of what a terrible mother I am. So, you know, that's a consistent struggle. I don't know, excuse me, if I've mentioned this before, but I do do therapy. I continue therapy throughout his life. So, and I'm I'm very blessed that I have a very supportive family. Um, What I've learned through this struggle and going to therapy is that I had to set boundaries in place to protect myself and my own inner peace. Mm -hmm. And I cannot let this illness take take both of us at the end of the day. I can't love him well. Yeah. And when you can't control the other person, the mm-hmm. son in your case, you can control you mm-hmm. and the way you're thinking about this. And and you do a good job. You, you do such good things for yourself, Julie. I really always well, look you. up That's to you with that. Sweet. You do. Same. You have to do a lot of self-care and, and self-evaluating. Yeah. And it's it's not that I don't have bad days and it's not that I, you know, like Mother's Day, obviously, I, I truly, I miss him. I miss our talks. I miss how much he makes me laugh. He's charismatic and funny. and But it's unfortunate that this illness has made him choose a different path and I can't fix that. Mm-hmm. No amount of love, no amount of therapy is... Is going to fix that right now. So, except the therapy for yourself, right? So I, and I can't sit at home and cry every day. Mm-hmm. So I just have to accept it. I told my therapist a few weeks ago. It's it's like, it's like mourning a death, for lack of a better description. Yeah, they call it ambiguous grief. Yeah, you've spoken about that mm-hmm. before. That's a term. I don't know if that's really a term or it's just something in the support communities I'm in, but um, it's definitely like a, a death. You you have mourned it, and you're at peace with where you're at in your life, and you just try to enjoy the little things. That's what I try to do moving mm-hmm. forward. Just enjoy the little things. Yeah, a very smart move. Yeah. Really smart. And how about for you? Um, I feel as though I do the same thing in the way of taking care of myself and realizing when things are not in my control, um, 
that that's the best thing I can do. And I've done that more and more over the years. And it really is so true. It really strengthens a situation. I feel like, uh, you know, I did have a very nice Mother's Day, actually, one long distance child. And to my two here, it was very, uh, very nice. And I actually spent Mother's Day, for the most part, with my mother. Oh, almost 91. Oh, that's great. Very special. So Good. it is, it is, I always feel as though it's a Hallmark holiday, sort of nothing against Hallmark, but no. sort of, um, I agree. I know, don't get worked like, up on It's holidays. just not a big, big mm-hmm. thing for me, but it just, uh, I was more thinking of the people that struggle with the whole issue of motherhood, you know, right. it was a day for that too, mm-hmm. I'm sure for some. Yeah. Um, if you are struggling and through these holidays, which we have a whole podcast on, if you want to listen to it, just know we've been there and, um, we hear you. Today, we are going to discuss a topic that still holds a large stigma in mental health, larger than some eating disorders. Our guest, Abigail Natenshone is an eating disorder psychotherapist in practice for over 50 years, 35 of which have been focused on the treatment of eating disorders and the underlying emotional issues that drive them. In addition to her private practice, she provides psychoeducative consultation for mental health professionals, as well as for parents of children with eating disorders. She has authored books and treatment guides and appeared on talk shows of all sorts of high-profile areas, and we will try and get to, to talk about that, too. Overall, I must say, when we were looking for an expert on eating disorders, we hit the jackpot with this next guest. Welcome, Abigail Nathan Schoen. Welcome. It's lovely to be with you guys. Thank you so much for Thanks. inviting me, and I feel so privileged to be able to talk to a community of people who are interested in eating disorders because they are they're so prevalent in in our society there's these days they're so um misunderstood and and so um just in need of clarification i just hope i can leave you guys with a sense of having a greater understanding so there can be more recognition of these diseases, there can be more healing, and um, the world will become a better place. Right, absolutely. Let's start out with uh, what you would say, and and are you, you're fine with us calling you Abby. You and I have had some, we've never met face-to-face. I look forward to that someday, but we have been uh, in such conversation. I feel like I've known you for a long time and calling you Abby. Let me introduce you to Julie, my uh, my partner co-host, here, my yes. co-host of, of Behind Our Door, Julie, Abby. Hi. Nice to great meet to, you, Julie. It's great um, to meet you. I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to learning about this because I feel like this is a topic I am in the dark about. I don't really know a lot about other than what's publicized or put out in the media. What, Abby, on that note, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions of, with this disease? Well, there are so many of them, but the most serious one, I think, is that a lot of people feel that eating disorders are incurable, that having 
an eating disorder is a life sentence. And this is obviously, well, it should become obviously not the case. In, although in some instances, I do want to say, say that um, it can be a life sentence if a person in, in their lives develops an eating disorder and is not able to um, get treatment that is effective and to the point where they can become fully and sustainably healed. Because those situations will leave people with some kind of a low-grade disorder that sort of simmers below the radar and will potentially erupt in the face of some kind of crisis or trauma in a person's life. So um, these diseases are... 100% curable in 80% of cases that are treated effectively um, and, and that are treated in a way that is knowledgeable, so, where people can understand. Yes. So, so how would someone know, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I wonder, you know, it, there must be a fine line at times. How do I know I ha or my my the person who's caring for someone? What are some of the real clear symptoms that there is a problem that they have an eating disorder rather than just a um, you know they're overthinking the eating and or not eating? How do they know that they have? How do they know that they should reach out for help? Right, right. You know, um, in distinguishing. The eating disorder from just now and then disordered eating patterns. Um, I would say that if somebody is dieting for a week in advance of a prom, so, so they'll look beautiful in their dress, it certainly would be benign enough of a desire. Um, if that wearer can sustain the power to freely change her mind about her choice, and that's that is uh, certainly people who are disordered eaters who choose for certain occasions to eat more in a celebratory um, way of, of dealing with food or to eat less because they're not feeling so well. You know, that's, that's certainly benign. But the most important thing is to understand that an eating disorder is driven by obsession. It's driven by compulsions. It's driven by perfectionism, and it leads to a lack of free choice in engaging in, by engaging in, in behavioral extremes. Um, it, well, as in an instance, we could look at excessive exercise, which is so common for people who have eating disorders. Very often, people will um, seek weight loss so um the excessiveness, the extremes, um, have to do with compulsive body checking, looking in windows and of storefronts, and looking in mirrors just to reassure themselves that they are not becoming overweight. So, um, also with eating disorders, there is generally an evidence of co-occurring mood disorders, such as anxiety and depression guilt and fear. And interestingly enough, people generally will 
um, experience fear of recovery, feeling that it will um, lead to out-of-control, even if it's normalized eating, that it will lead to out-of-control um, gorging and the dread of weight gain. But interestingly enough, people will also become afraid of not recovering and understanding that they would risk falling deeper into the mire of the disease and permanently damaging one's metabolism and that it could lead to overweight in later years and um, and that they would feel that they would possibly no longer be respected by others and loved accepted based on um, what they would see as being self-disciplined. Can I um, ask you a question before we delve too much into this? Um, when I think of eating disorders, obviously I think of anorexia and bulimia. Is is that mm-hmm. all the eating disorders that are out there? Are there different eating disorders? You know, as as a parent or a, a loved one, or what am I looking for dealing with signs, or even maybe within myself to know that there's an issue? What you are looking for is something that may be ironically quite hidden because of the stigma and the fear that people have when they have an eating disorder. They're so afraid to be without it um, for, for fear of being out of control. So they would be hiding it. So as a parent, it is, it's easy to um, overlook something that a child might be hiding. But with anorexia, you'll find that people may, the child may lose weight um, quickly, regularly, be eating less, avoiding meals, throwing away lunches that they may be taking to school. There needs to be dialogue between parents and children. And um, there will be mood disorders invariably because of the stress and strain that the child is feeling, the hunger perhaps, um, but basically the fear of becoming fat. That is the bottom line. And um, that describes what people with anorexia uh, struggle with. And having to do with bulimia, that has to do with... Um, People do uh, overdoing, uh, overeating, uh, over, overdoing whatever their compulsion is. If they're studying, they may be overstudying. They may be studying for seven hours a day. If they're going to sleep at three o'clock in the morning and then sleeping until twelve, the, these kinds of extreme behaviors. But also with bulimia, you will you'll notice that people are. Um, they use undoing behaviors, compensatory undoing behaviors. What do you mean by that? And Undo- Well, like, for instance, they might purge or they may use over-exercising as a way of losing weight. So um, they, the effort is to just try to... And, and so what happens is when people binge and then purge, what they are doing is essentially sustaining a normal weight because they are overeating, undereating, and overeating, starving. And then the, the, the weight 
gain and loss evens out. And one of the myths about eating disorders is that you can tell by looking, but not necessarily because a person who's binging and and um, compensating by purging is going to maintain, in many instances, a normal weight. And people who are in various stages of the disease and various stages of recovery are going to also be of normal weight. So, but um, the, I also want to mention that there are um, other diseases that are considered to be um, eating disorders. Um, one has to do with um, binge eating disorder, which is something that's also been called um, night eating syndrome, um, where people will just overeat out of control or they will stop in a grocery store feeling very stressed and unhappy or tired or whatever, will stop in a grocery store and, and purchase um, generally high caloric foods that they will soothe themselves with, emotionally soothe themselves. There is uh, an, a disease that is called orthorexia, which has to do with um, the, a person's effort to eat only healthy foods. Mm, Only healthy. That's interesting. And what is that However, called again? Can you repeat? What's that it's called? called? It's called orthorexia. And what what is so ironic is that the um, that there's nothing healthy about restricting certain food groups, which is what these people do. So these people are um, not allowing themselves a normal, healthy eating lifestyle. And in so doing, they um, they are interfering with one of the most wonderful acts of our wise bodies, and that is that just through a healthy eating lifestyle, where where people are eating um, three meals a day with. Major healthy snack at four o'clock or six small meals a day. If people are not doing that, what they're doing is putting themselves into situations where um, their body is not going to be allowed to establish a healthy, ideal set point weight, which it would be able to do were a person to be eating normally. So all these efforts to control what people put in their mouth is these efforts are really um, not helpful and um, will ultimately exacerbate the problem of need for control. And it invariably is not only having to do with food, it would have to do with probably most of their uh, experiences in life. That uh, need that insecurity and need to be in control. Abby, what what age, if if this is even a possible, if there's even a possible answer to this, what age does this diagnose does this diagnosis manifest at? Is there an average, like with certain mental illnesses, it in the you know early twenties can you know sometimes bipolar disorder sets in then with a certain uh, demographic. Is anorexia something like you know the the stereotype is that it's for teenage girls. Yeah. Um, you know, that's right. what I think people think of, anorexic teenage girls. And 
I get calls, you know, I, I get crisis calls often, and there's times where a parent will say, I know, and <laughs> this has happened several times, they'll say, I know this is going to sound weird, but my son, who is, you know, 18, or at one point it was someone in their 40s, my son has anorexia, my son has eating disorders, um, you know, I think that's something that needs to be spoken about and clarified that it's not just girls, it's boys too, but is there an age? And I'm, of course, I'm asking you two things at once, but um, what do you have to say about that? What I have to say is that children at younger and younger ages are now being more regularly diagnosed. Like how old? Young, young meaning how old? When I say young, I'm talking about as early as age nine. Wow. Jeez. 11, you know, under 13. Um, and what the, the research shows is that uh, the very young and developing brain is at risk for becoming permanently damaged um, when children are restricting food or engaging in, um, you know, the unhealthy uh, food use. And so, um, but I, I also want to say that um, it's more that the, the misconceptions um, happen to into people in ways that are far beyond just age and gender, um, because you know most people misconstrue eating disorders as having to do with people who are skinny who are white, hmm. who are young, and certainly not as young as I just described about children who are under 13, but um, but young in the sense that um, they would be teenagers or people in their 20s. So, and also people think that, it, that these people would be affluent. And certainly that they would all be females. So um, I was just going to ask and, and you that. What, yeah. If the if yeah. the perception is that it's um, like a female problem. Oh, certainly, certainly, female. That's what there. So so what this indicates is that there is when you think about what the significance of of the stereotyping is that so many individuals and classes of individuals are slipping through the cracks of recognition of disease and diagnosis and treatment and healing. So eating disorders are the most, they are the most misunderstood and misdiagnosed and underdiagnosed and therefore undertreated disorders. And why do you think that is? I think they are complex diseases that are just mis they're so misunderstood. As an example, a lot of people feel that if there is a weight problem, it really is simply solved by just using willpower and eating different foods in different amounts. And it's no problem. It'll be gone with change in those behaviors. But what they're not understanding is that these disorders are driven 
by underlying emotional issues that must be uh, recognized and that they must be worked through. I'm so so hoping, I'm so hoping that our our listening audience is hearing all this so that people that would not reach out, you know, not realize they should reach out would, knowing what you're, you know, what you're saying is so crucial. You know, it's, um, the thing that I want to say about eating disorders that people don't understand is that these diseases, which most people consider disorders of eating and weight control and food, that's what we think because they're called eating disorders. But in actual fact, these disorders are disorders of neurobiology. They are disorders of the brain. They are, they are disorders that take place within the, um, the nervous system, the distributed nervous system. And, um, they're, they're much more complex than anybody understands because what people see outwardly is someone's appearance. But they have no, obviously, opportunity to understand and appreciate the role of the brain in, in these disorders. And the role is such that it is, um, it's really at the, at the rock bottom um, root of is, all. These are genetically. I was just going to ask you that. If it was, yeah. if there was any evidence of this being a genetic issue. Absolutely. Wow. These are genetic issues, and they they come from from um, what happens is when when the both when two parents. Uh, when the genes of two parents come together um, and fertilizing, you know, an egg, mm-hmm. what happens is that there are four elements that are carried in the genes from both mother and father, and that um, these elements are anxiety and depression and past eating disorders in, fa- in the family's system. And addiction, if there's addiction in the genes, this is interesting because an eating disorder is not an addiction, but eating disorders do um, reflect addictive kinds of behaviors in their compulsivity. So what happens is that when these genes come together, it lends itself to to gene expression in such a way that the person becomes susceptible, most susceptible to developing an eating disorder. Wow, that's so super it interesting. So it, it, it's all about the genetics and the brain. These are inborn traits. And I wanted to say, in light of this, that, that you know, so many people blame themselves for having an eating disorder. But nobody wants these disorders. Nobody asks for these disorders. And when people blame themselves, it's because the patients, anyway, they feel like they feel guilty that they're causing concern to their parents, that they should have been able to stop this on their own, that it it seems a little crazy to them, but they can't stop 
what they what they find themselves engaging in and the way they're thinking. And and parents too feel a lot of self blame. They feel that, oh, you know, I should have noticed this. Why didn't I recognize that she'd been losing weight or that she's not eating as much breakfast as she ate before? Why didn't I do something to prevent this from happening? So there is so much misunderstanding and it brings so much grief. Yeah. So, you know, when you ask about why, why is it that people aren't recognizing this and not getting the right kind of help, you know, a lot of it has to do with... um, Stigma? I was saying, too, though, earlier, I did say, you know, that for some reason this has more stigma, you know, in some respects and other mental illnesses, plus maybe even more so for a male, um, you know, harder to come forward because of that stereotypic, it's a girl's disease, um, those sorts yeah. of issues, maybe. But um, it's very interesting how biological this is and how genetic yes. this can be. Right. And and the other piece that I wanted to talk about is that eating disorders are integrative diseases. And what I mean by that is that they affect every aspect of a person's mind, brain, body, executive function. It's there is it's nothing that is left uh, and selfhood. It destroys these are disorders of the self where the self becomes fragmented and the healing comes in the reconnection of the mind, brain and body to cre- to recreate that whole self. But the fact that it's integrated dis- disorders that's one of the reasons that most professionals, health professionals, don't understand what they're looking at. They don't see how integrated it is. They don't see how um, how ill-equipped they are to recognize all parts of the brain and the nervous system and the body that are affected and all parts that need to be addressed and healed. People don't realize how important that the the, um, therapists, health professionals, don't understand that there is very often a need for them to be highly sensitive to risk factors because these diseases are the most lethal of all the mental health disorders. So, So, yeah, go ahead. No, so when you're talking about, because I know, you know, that you have had experience and it sounds like... You know, I can imagine how detailed and informative these sessions are of you informing other professionals about um, all of the, you know, the psychoeducative consultations you do with mental health on this note. What are some of the treatments? What are some some treatments for um, these different aspects of eating disorders? You know, eating disorders are... Behaviorally, you know, the first thing that has to happen in treatment is that when there is malnourishment, that uh, people need to understand that there's, their brain has no capacity to benefit from psychotherapy. So the first kinds of treatments that have to um, be applied would be behavioral, having to do with refeeding, and uh, cognitive 
having to do with learning to um, to process and think about what they're doing in a way that is different from from what has been the history up to, to that date. Um, but um, it's very important uh, for people to know that in terms of treatment, the, in my opinion, the most important factor in reaching success an out an outcome where there is true healing and return of that selfhood, that personhood, uh, that comes with um, the relationship, the quality of the connection and the attachment between the patient and the therapist, because so much of this problem has to do with the destruction of the self, with the person feeling no self-confidence, no self-esteem, no sense of who they are. And it is through a relationship, a wonderful relationship, that where someone can feel appreciated and can come to know themselves, that's, that's where... It's, and that ha- that's what happens in the in the process of a relationship, and that is the most important aspect of of recovery. You know, I, one of the things I want to say to you is that I could give you a two minute crash course in how people heal. Um, and you know, basically, what I would say is that it's about um, bringing to light again a person's sense of self-trust and well-being. And this is how it works. When there is a close, secure attachment between the patient and the therapist, this gives the patient the opportunity to detach from their commitment to the eating disorder and then to transfer their trust and attachment to the therapist, to the treatment process, and ultimately, to the patient's own growing willingness and capacity to attach to himself or herself with love and with confidence. So, um, the the relationship between the patient and therapist is important because it it obviously models it's a, it's a good model for healthy executive function and cognitive behavioral problem solving, but most significantly, it offers the patient a nurturing venue and opportunity to experience in some instances for the very first time in a person's life to experience a sense of self-confidence and well-being in rediscovering or first discovering a newly configured acquaintance with one's own authentic self and personhood. So mm-hmm. it is through the relationship. And this is what I have come to through my years, decades and decades of work with eating disordered individuals. It has been my passion to see people come to life again as they do with the proper treatment. And I love my work and I love my clients. And um, 
but it, it is, it's really been such a privilege to be able to see people come back to themselves, to come back to feeling grounded and, and self-actualized and potent as, as individuals. So that, that's all in the relationship. So if in some, my opinion, yeah, it, I mean, it, you know, there are, as I said, there are behavioral issues that have to be dealt with and mood. The other piece of this is mood disturbances that happen with eating disorders. So those have to be dealt with. It all has to happen. It's one big integrative ball of yarn. That's so, what I picture. So, let, so, so just to put this in layman's terms, because I'm not that yeah. smart. Um, <laughs> it sounds to me like the first thing we're going to treat is like the medical aspect of if the body is breaking down. Correct? Right? Absolutely. And and the, the you have to understand, too, that there are many different levels of restriction um, in terms of how uh, in, in the initial assessment, diagnostic assessment, a person is going to need to decide, the therapist is going to have to decide immediately, is this person at risk? Right, right. And, and, and is it this- is so that... Yes. Is this an in? Is this at times an inpatient situation, or is this um, more often done outpatient, or you know, with okay. th- seeing and a therapist a uh, few times a week? Or right. Well, I think that was like my question. Are we so initially, if if your if your body is breaking down, for lack of a better medical term, we have to get their their body more healthy. Right, so that exactly, so that exactly, would... the critical issues must be dealt with immediately, and in some ish, in some instances, that would require hospitalization. Yeah, in one level down from hospitalization, there is uh, something called residential care, mm-hmm. where right. people would stay overnight for any number of months, weeks, or months. Uh, in their beginning to recover and to reacquaint themselves with a healthy eating lifestyle and where they would begin their therapy. And from there, there are, um, there are what is called in, um, intensive outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. And that would, would require a person to be spending five or six days a week at a hospital, but sleeping home at a, at a, whether not a hospital, but um, a, at a treatment, treatment center, clinic, a, yeah. a, a treatment clinic, mm-hmm. right, where people would um, spend a full a full day and 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 have three meals. Then there is a less intensive outpatient program where people would go just for three hours a night for three nights a week, something like that. And then the least restrictive kind of treatment would be individual outpatient care, which is what what I have been engaging in. But um, I also want to say that if you are an individual um, uh, provider, it's absolutely critical that the parents become involved in the work because the parents' role is so instrumental in making the work successful and efficient and... um, it's it's one of the most important things that a therapist can be, aside from individual uh, comfort with an individual work. They also need to feel comfortable with conjoint family work, and and it's also helpful for 
people who are treaters to be familiar with all different kinds of modes of treatment, including trauma-related treatment and, um, you know, including the cognitive behavioral and the the, um, all kinds of, they just, just, they, 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 yeah, I, I, um, I, the way I'm understanding it is we're treating the medical first and then we're going to delve into how the, um, illness has manifested itself, whether it comes from trauma or an anxiety or a depression. Is that correct? How I'm understanding absolutely. it? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and then obviously with any mental health issue, it, it's also imperative mm-hmm. to have the family be a part of it because I think the whole family has to heal. You know, it's not just one individual, but yeah, when you're talking about transfer, and- right, transference of relationships, that you need yeah. to have that confidence in yourself, but you have to initially base it in something else, right? Am I right? <laughs> Am I wrong? Absolutely on target. Okay. Yes, these are family system disorders. And, and you know, the role of parents is so important because kids are 24-7 mm-hmm. there. <laughs> or even, even loved they ones, are... even your significant other. Your... Yeah, I mean, sometimes this is older people, too. Mm-hmm. You know, not just kids, it's yes. adults. That, of course, um, of course. I was reading an article that, uh, just in preparing and interest sake, that Elton John came out with a whole discussion on his eating disorders, and I think that was late in life. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's not just kids, so it has to be the home life, you're saying, the environment as well, that so that when someone steps down from all of this, if that's how they went, they're back home and whatever that is, and they it's an understanding of what's been going on, treating that whole family yeah, of whatever they are. Right. The spouse. It's, the, it's a, pardon, go ahead. I mean, if it was a spouse, if it's, you know, I mean, like yeah, we said, it's not just teen- it's not just teenagers. Of course not. Of yeah. course not. And Did, a lot of times it comes, when it's in older people, it comes from not having resolved these issues mm-hmm. fully and completely uh, at, at an earlier age for any number of reasons. But there, you know, it's, when you talk about these environmental factors, it's, there is uh, an old saw, an old saying in, um, in the psychotherapy world that... Um, Genetics and neurobiology loads the gun, and that the environment pulls the trigger. Interesting. And I like that. Yes, yes, and and certainly for 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 many people, it has to do with things that have happened in their early lives. Um, they have found that um, people who that that. Immediately after a trauma, 70% of the people who have eating disorders began to engage in those behaviors immediately after the a trauma happened. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, these, the environment uh, is, is absolutely critical to... Um, a more successful outcome. To the... De- Oh, for sure, for sure. Did well, you see? Did you see any changes, increase, or, or just changes 
with the pandemic when people were uh, shut, when there was shut down, you're in your homes more. And was there yes. was there an effect on this? Did you see an increase in numbers calling you or? Yes. Yeah. With the eating I have disorders. To that, that during, you know, I think it's, it's common knowledge that during the pandemic, all mental health mm-hmm. yeah, correct. Yeah. were soaring right. in numbers and uh, people were affected. They still are affected, I believe, mm-hmm. from that trauma of this. And um, I, I'm not sure, you know, one of the things that I want to say having to do with treatment uh, is that there is a very important role of psychoeducation that treaters need to um, consider becoming knowledgeable about and involved with. And that has to do with the fact that when, a, when people first come to treatment, first of all, they end up coming, they end up reaching out to family physicians and uh, the research shows that most family physicians don't have any knowledge or experience in treating eating disorders and that they feel they have admitted, many of them have confessed to feeling worry and stress mm-hmm. in the face of not knowing what they're dealing with and how they can uh, talk about these disorders with people without feeling um, that they are... Um, speaking down, being critical, being judgmental, and certainly not certain about how they should be treated. Many of them are not even aware of the various stages of um, the, the care levels. So, um, but the thing you need to understand is that people who begin eating disorder treatment deserve to be taught. I, I spend a long time in the initial assessment, diagnostic assess, assessment, teaching people about eating disorders and, and what they're about and how they heal. And um, I teach them about something as simple as healthy eating lifestyle and how a person doesn't have to worry or try to control their own weight. If they eat a healthy eating lifestyle, the body is going to take over and and um, and function in such a way that they will never have to be worrying about becoming fat because the body once it reaches is once it reaches its ideal weight, its set point weight, it's it is programmed by Mother Nature to stay that way, and so. It's it's uh, it, there's, there's nothing fancy about the healthy eating lifestyle. It's just balanced and regularized, and you know it, it's including all food groups, mm-hmm. and um, and it's got to be and the food needs to be diverse and portion sizes and all of this that people know. But what they don't understand is that there are no bad foods. There are no bad foods. Even point. people who are afraid of eating sugar or flour or whatever it is, no. What is what is important is that people just eat nutritionally dense foods and nutritionally dense meals. Every meal should contain 
protein, a complex carb, and healthy fat. And, you know, it sounds simple, and it's the only thing, I suppose, that sounds simple in the whole context of of eating disorders and and their treatment. Well, you've put um, this in such a perspective. I mean, I feel as though this is a gift to the listeners that, are tuning in for this because you've really laid out you've it, you've enlightened us that's for sure because yes. we really didn't look at I've learned so much from just this one episode of talking with you because there are so many misconceptions and you've mm-hmm. really broken it down to um to such a point where people can recognize more and know what they that that it's not such a, it's not hopeless you started say you said this is curable I think this was a very hopeful discussion on eating disorders, You, the way you've put it. Agreed. Nancy and, and Julie, I, I'm very grateful to you for um, listening. and We, for, we so appreciate um, your time. Yeah, we would love to have you back because I think... Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I have so many more questions about sustainability and ketosis and all these fad diets, so we'd love for you mm-hmm, to come mm-hmm. back and... And do another show about eating disorders. So, so we'll consider this chapter one yes. because this has just been uh, really so interesting and we look forward to learning more from you, Abby. Thank you so much for coming on Behind Our Door. Thank you for being with us today and educating us. You're very us. welcome. I, thank you. Thank you. I very much enjoy being with you girls. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Until next time. Bye, Abby. Okay. Take Hi, care. Hi, Abby. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. Nice meeting you. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.